0: Now, can we thank God for uh, not being in bondage at all? Amen. <laughs> hey, thank you, worship team, for leading us so well this morning. I'm excited to be here. It's, it's good to see your faces uh, amongst the body of Christ proclaiming the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, our church uh, is passionate about uh, reaching this neighborhood. We do exist to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city, realizing that this is a big city. 2.6 million people live here. And we are on mission to engage every single one of them with the gospel message of Christ. And I hope you guys will join me in doing that. Uh, speaking of the gospel message, why don't you grab your Bibles and meet me in Romans chapter 1. Let's get right to it. As you can tell, we are officially starting our sermon series through the book of Romans. Uh, shout out to Gabe for, for hooking this up for us. Amen. I'm excited about Romans. Romans is a book that is going to take us some time to get through. But nevertheless, I, I hope you guys have started. Some of you, I know for a fact, you have started your journey through the book of Romans and really started to do uh, some type of devotion through uh, through this book. But I, I just believe uh, that the Lord is going to use it if you're not uh, didn't have a really experience here at our church. You haven't been around that long. Uh, one of the things about our church you should know is that we are passionate about working through books of the Bible. So this is our fifth book that we're going through, and um, and I like to, I never like to just say we're going through books of the Bible because that just sounds like okay we'll spend some time in Romans and we'll be out. But we literally go verse by verse and line by line uh, because we believe that the Word of God has everything we need uh, pertaining to life and godliness. And so we'll we'll spend sixteen, uh, we'll spend our time working through sixteen chapters. We'll have a little break in between, uh, verse, chapters eight and chapters nine. Nevertheless. Uh, I believe that this is going to be a profound, profound book for us. Uh, So let let me just jump in. If you're in Romans, meet me in verse one. I know it's raining outside, y'all, but uh, I need y'all to talk back a little bit as we're working through. All right. All right. Romans chapter one. Here's what it says. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, underline this phrase, by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, talking about Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about The obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. Verse 7 To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to simply preach from the title and top uh, the topic entitled Paul's Introduction. Uh, Let's look to the Lord before we dig in. Father, uh, we are entering into this book with great anticipation, great anticipation that you're going to meet us every single week as we dig into your word. Father, there's a lot in this book, and I pray that you would challenge us. You you need no invitation, but nevertheless, we want to invite you to challenge us, encourage us, rebuke us, uh, all of the things that are necessary for us to grow. I pray that that would all be present as we work through these 16 chapters. It's in Christ's name we give all glory and all honor. Let everybody say amen. Paul's introduction. I'm told of a, of a father that wanted to take his 16-year-old son to teach him how to drive, and so he took him outside to the car, and the father rushed to the car, and the father got into the driver's seat, and, and the son came to the driver's seat window to watch his father, and his father went on to explain some very important details about driving. He showed him how to adjust the mirrors so that he could see clearly behind him, he showed him how to adjust the seat and how to move the seat up and back, he knows he's a 16-year-old kid that's going to be bumping the radio, so he showed him how to turn the volume up and turn the volume down. He showed him how to, where the windshield wipers were and how you turn the windshield wipers on and what speeds the windshield wipers need to be based on uh, the rain. Uh, he showed him a numerous things about the car, and then finally, the father, feeling like he explained himself well and articulated himself well on all of the details about how to drive, gets out of the driver's seat and tells the son to get in the driver's seat. The son gets in the driver's seat. The father stands there with excitement and says, all right, son, turn the ignition on. And the son looks at the father and was a little discouraged and said, I don't know how to turn the ignition on because you didn't show me how to turn the ignition on. So the father went through all of these great instructions and important details, but failed at the most important detail. The windshield wipers don't matter if you don't have the ignition on. The radio doesn't matter if you don't have the ignition on. Adjusting the mirrors really doesn't matter if the car is not going to move because you don't have the ignition on. And so it is with the cross of Christ. If all we get is a bunch of instructions over the next few months, over a year, if all we get is a bunch of instructions by Paul, but we don't get to the gospel, which is the engine being turned on, our time is in vain. If all we get is a bunch of don't do this and do this, but we never get to the gospel message, we are going to be missing a huge piece of this book. There are many instructions in this book. If you go to chapter 12, verse 1, a very famous verse, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable spiritual worship. Paul is basically saying, do this or don't do this. If you go to verse number 2 in chapter 12, it says, do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go over to chapter 13, verse one. Another instruction we're giving. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no other authority except from God. Over and over again, Paul will lay out a bunch of instructions. But Paul never, ever lays out instructions void of the gospel. Paul always is going to give instructions and root them in Jesus Christ, and he's going to root them in the gospel. In other words, Paul isn't going to tell us to turn the windshield wipers on, but not tell us how to turn the engine on. He's going to show us Christ. In fact, in our introductory verses, that is exactly what he does. Now, we're only in verses one through seven, which is Paul's introduction. And a lot of times whenever we're reading books or maybe you've gone through a book of your own in your own devotional time, a lot of times, let's be honest, we skip over the introductions, especially if it's a genealogy. We just ain't got time for all those names. But it's very important that we never skip over any parts of the word of God, especially the introduction, because what we'll do is we'll skip the introduction to try to get to the meat of the text. And in reality, there's meat in the instructions. There's a lot we can gather from Uh, verses one through seven. In fact, I wrestled with the fact that I was going through one through seven. I was going to do verse one and stay right there because there's a lot in verse one. In fact, let's just jump right in since we don't have a lot of time together. Verse one, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The opening verse gives us three important facts about the author three important facts, but before we can get to the important facts about the author, it is important for us to identify who is the author, because not every book of the Bible uh, lets us in on who the author is. We're privileged this morning because this one does. There's a name that is in the very first uh, verse, and the very first word of that verse, Paul. In other words, Paul is explaining to us this morning, he's claiming authorship of this book. Paul is a very smart guy. He's known as uh, many of you might know him as Saul of Tarsus, very educated guy, which is important because remember we went through the book of First Peter and I told you that Peter was an uneducated man. He was a fisherman, but not so with Paul. Paul is educated on the Hebrew law. In fact, if you go to Philippians chapter three, Paul is going to lay out his own resume. And when he lays out his own resume, he says, "I'm circumcised on the eighth day." He's uh, basically he's he's flossing a little bit in Philippians chapter three. He says. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Listen to this one. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. So, in other words, Paul is saying to us over and over again, I'm that dude. I wrote 75% of the New Testament, and so Paul is Paul is a very, very educated guy, but he's not just educated. He's a passionate man that is very zealous. In fact, the Bible is going to tell us that Paul has zeal to persecute Christians. Before he met Jesus, Paul was consumed with zeal to persecute the church. But here's what I love about Jesus. Whenever you meet Jesus, he never just takes away the zeal. He keeps the zeal in place. He just redirects it to bring him glory. In other words, before Paul met Jesus, he was passionate about persecuting the church. Once Jesus shows him who he is, Paul is still passionate, but now he's not passionate about persecuting the church. He's passionate about building the church. And hear me, when God saves you, God never saves you and removes the zeal that once got you in trouble. The zeal that got you in trouble before, he keeps that zeal, he keeps that passion, but he redirects it on himself so that he can get the glory. Let me see if I can make this plain. When I was younger, I used to get in trouble a lot, and one of the reasons I used to get in trouble as a kid was because I didn't talk too much, but I was that dude, I was that kid that would say the thing that everybody else in the room is thinking, but because I was a child, it was disrespectful, and I always got in trouble for it, so my mouth got me in trouble a lot. And if you fast forward now, I'm 38 years old, and I get the privilege of standing before you every single week and using a gift that God has given me, my mouth, to proclaim the gospel, which got me in trouble before. And this is a word for you parents in here, too, because what we do with our kids is we look at our our kids in an unredeemed way, and we say, man, they shouldn't be talking that much. They shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be that curious, but you don't know how God is going to use that zeal. How God is going to use that passion and what's getting them in trouble now, he might redirect it later to bring him glory. Paul is that dude. Paul gotten, he was the dude that was very zealous about persecuting the church. But then God says in Acts chapter 9, nah, you're mine. He takes him. He does not remove the zeal. He keeps the zeal. But now we get a Paul that writes scripture. Now we get a Paul that's an apostle. Now we get a Paul that is a leader and a pillar of the church. And so as we're going through this book, it's important for you to know there is an author of this book. His name is Paul. He's passionate about the church, but now his passion is to build it, not to destroy the church. Now that we know and we're well acquainted with the author, let's see how he identifies himself. Look at verse 1. It says, Paul, here's the first way he identifies himself, a servant of Christ Jesus. He realizes without reservation that he belongs to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, in first century Rome, it it was it was a a very degrading thing to call yourself a servant. But Paul, even in the first century, says, no, this isn't a degrading title for me. Being a servant of the most high, being a servant of Jesus Christ actually is a title of honor. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we got to the place where we put the title of servant on ourselves? before we put the other titles that you have. It doesn't matter if you've gone to school for 50 years. It doesn't matter if you got 10 to 15 doctorate degrees. None of that matters. Really, your priority in being identified has to be as a servant of Christ. Before you are a leader, before you are educated, before your occupation, you are a servant of Christ. Unfortunately, too many people know us for other things, but Paul is like, nah. And Paul was a leader. In fact, the second way he identifies himself in verse 1 is, I'm called as an apostle. But note, note, the, note the, 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 the order he uses here. He says, I'm a servant of Christ before I'm an apostle. In, in other words, he's not, he could have opened this book and said, my name is Paul, I'm apostle, do what I said. He could have opened a book like that and you would have had to obey it. Why? Because he is an apostle. He is a leader, but he doesn't. He opens the book and says, "Nah, before I'm an apostle... I'm a servant of the king. I love the king, and so I want to serve him. And so he says, I'm a servant of Christ. Secondly, I am an apostle. Paul is not some self-proclaimed apostle. He's not an apostle that just woke up one morning and said, you know what? This Pharisee thing ain't working out. And so I'm going to change occupations, and now I'm going to be an apostle. No, did you notice this word? Called as an apostle. And why is this important to us? This is important because we got many apostles running around today like how are you 20 years old and you an apostle like, I don't like like nah bro you you probably called yourself like like let's let's just first of all and I studied what an apostle was in order to be an apostle you got to be at least 2,000 years old I don't know nobody 2,000 years old you, you got to be an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection or you got to be called specifically by Christ and set in, set out on a missions. But but we got a lot of apostles running around. But when I read the scriptures, I realized being called an apostle is a very, very authoritative title in the church. Paul here affirms himself, says, listen, I'm an apostle, basically saying everything I write from here on out is a command of the Lord. Everything I write from here on out isn't some good ideas. Everything I write from here on out isn't some, some, some good opinions, but what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. And why is that important? Because there's some things in this book. If I can be honest with you, if I could skip some things, there's some things I would skip. Because there are some parts of this book that are hard, that, that aren't palatable, that may be hard for you to understand, that may rub against the way you grew up and may rub against your own personal core values. But we always got to remember the person that wrote it is an apostle that is being used by the Lord. Can I put a little bit of Bible here on the authority of apostles? 1 Corinthians chapter two, verse thirteen says, "We talking about the apostles, impart these words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit." Okay. Second Peter chapter three, verse two: You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior. Watch this. Through your apostles. Okay, watch what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul ain't playing games with us. He's not saying what I write in the next 16 chapters are just a bunch of good ideas. What I'm writing to you are commands from the Lord. Why? Because he's called me as an apostle. This is important for us, and as we get to those verses And it rubs you the wrong way. In other words, every week you ain't leaving shouting. Some weeks you won't leave with an attitude and it's good for us. We need it. You cannot nurture a healthy and and, and spiritually growing church if you leave every week and say amen. There are some weeks that you got to leave and say ouch. There are some weeks you got to leave and wrestle There are some questions that you're going to have that you got to wrestle with. But nevertheless, why do we sit under this teaching? Because it's the apostles teaching, not my teaching. I ain't an apostle. It's the apostles teaching the apostle Paul. So he says this. He says, listen, my name is Paul. I'm a servant of the Lord. I am called as an apostle. I didn't appoint myself as an apostle. And then third, look how he identifies himself. I am set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, when I was born, when I was in my mother's womb, God set me apart for this work. I went to Hebrew school to to learn the Old Testament text, not to be a Pharisee. I thought that was the reason. But God was setting me apart. And and many of you like the reason why you're not able to do whatever you want to do is because God set you apart. Many of you, the reason why other people are able to get away with sin and you sin one time and have full conviction is because God has set you apart. The reason why that relationship didn't work out, it wasn't because you didn't bring anything to the table. It might have been because God set you apart. Many of you, like, you know, people that are set apart have a hard time fitting in. I remember there, there was one time when I graduated high school and. I went to college, and I went to a Division Three school specifically to play football. Started my freshman year. I got a little par- partial scholarship. Your boy was nice on the football field. And, and, and as we were going through the season, there was one game we played in Boston. So we jumped on the bus uh, the day before. We took the ride up to Boston from Jersey. And get to Boston. We get there a day early. We had a practice and then we had a curfew at about 8, 830 at night. And, you know, we don't have we didn't have a lot of money. So we in terms of the school. So we crammed guys into the room. So it was five guys in one room. We had cots and everything. And I'm sitting in the room. Everybody just showered from practice and we're sitting around and some dudes pulled out a bag of weed. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, this is unredeemed to me. I'm like, all right, let's go. So we crack the windows open and everybody's respecting the puff puff give rule, and everybody's smoking weed, and I'm smoking weed, and we we supposed to be chilling. But then I noticed halfway through that everybody else was getting high, but I just wasn't getting high. I was faking it. I was acting like I was, but in reality, I'm like, dag, I ain't, I don't feel nothing. What did like they enjoying themselves and I'm not, and by the way, this was the night before a game, so you know we lost that game. And I'm sitting there like, why don't, why don't I feel what everybody else is feeling? Now, looking in retrospect, I realize God was setting me apart in such a way that I couldn't even get high. And that's, that may be your story. I, I don't know your story, but there is something that you've been wrestling with and you're trying to figure out why in the world you just don't fit. And the reason you don't fit is because God set you apart. And our boy Paul was set apart. And he was set apart for a very specific reason. He didn't know that that's why he was set apart, but then looking back as God saved him, he says, This is why I set you apart. Why? Because of the gospel of God. He had a mission for him. So you're different. You're distinct. You are unique. It's okay that you don't fit in. You're not supposed to fit in. Why? Because you're unique. Why? Because you were set apart for the gospel of God. So here's what we got in verse one Paul wrote the book, he's a servant of Christ, he's called an apostle. He set apart for the gospel of God. Look at verse two. Which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verses one through three. Paul is like, listen, the gospel that I'm going to lay out, which is going to be so crystal clear in this book, the gospel that I lay out over the next several chapters isn't something that I'm just making up. But it's rooted in the Old Testament. Did you read that that passage with me? It says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, talking about the Old Testament concerning his son, Jesus Christ. He's saying everything that you thought you knew about the Old Testament actually points to Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying everything I'm going to lay out before you was deeply rooted in something that already was, which was the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't a backup plan. He's actually the plan. Like, like we didn't get to Matthew and then God was like, oh, my God, all the way to Malachi. I didn't know what in the world I was doing, but now I'm going to do this Jesus thing and see if it works. No, he was the plan. He was the goal. And Paul says that he says, listen, everything I'm going to lay out to you actually was already rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, the first promise of salvation to us was the moment we fell. Genesis three, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. And what does God do the moment, the mo- not the next day? The moment they fail, God talks to the serpent and he says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman and and between your offspring and her offspring. Talking about Christ, he will strike your heel. I mean, you will strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He is screaming to the church at Rome. Everything I'm laying out was already laid out in the Old Testament. Now I'm just going to show you. Basically, he's saying this book of Romans really is commentary for the Old Testament. That's good news for us, because then we realize that Jesus doesn't step on the scene in Matthew. He actually was Genesis 1-1. He was, a, he was the oath. He fulfilled the Old Testament. And why is this important for you? Because it keeps us from reading the scriptures and putting ourselves in the place of the hero. You know we do it. You know, we read first Samuel 17 and we read David and Goliath. And the first thing we do is we're like, I'm David and I strike my my Goliath. I strike my giants. In fact, we write songs about it. Giants do die. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Cute song, but it falls short of presenting Jesus as the hero, because what it does is it says you're the hero. But, you know, we're not the hero in that in that passage. Jesus is the hero in that passage. You know who we are. There's a verse tucked away in verse 11. That says, as Israel was listening to the Philistine talking about Goliath, they were deeply afraid. You know who you are in that text? You're Israel. We are afraid. There's a giant called sin that you cannot conquer. Jesus is David, steps up, kills your giant, and you don't have to. You get the benefit of what Jesus did. Basically, the Old Testament is showing us, Jesus. And so when you understand Jesus, as Paul is saying, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, it stops you from saying, I'm David. You're not. You're Israel, shaking in the corner. But Jesus is David slaying our Goliath. Can I do one more? We do that with, with passages like the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, if you never read that passage, you should read it. It's a parable where Jesus talks about there's a man going on a road. And as he's going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, He falls amongst thieves and amongst robbers, and they rob him, and they beat him up, and they leave him on the road half dead. And when they leave him on the road half dead, there's a man that walks by that's a priest. He sees him, crosses over to the other side of the road. Then then the Bible says that there's a Levite that walks down the road, sees the man that's half dead, crosses to the other side of the road. Then there's a third guy, a good Samaritan. He comes down, and he sees the man on the half dead on the side of the road. He binds up his wounds, he puts them on the horse, takes him to an inn, and pays for him to stay at the inn. And then he says, This is prophetic, any debt that he accures, put it on me. Now what we do is we read that and we say, Oh, I'm the good Samaritan. But you're not the good Samaritan. You're the man in the you're the man in the ditch. You're always the damsel in distress. And Jesus walks by, sees you cleans you up, takes you to an end and says, whatever debt he has, put it on me. So in other words, when Paul is saying that Jesus has fulfilled the scriptures, don't ever read scripture and think that you fulfill it because you don't. Jesus always fulfills the scriptures. And so that's what he says here in verse two, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Verse three. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but basically, Paul is laying out for us. See, man, Paul is so dope, because Paul here really is boiling down a very, very complex idea. Like the idea is if you're writing notes, write this this term or this phrase down, do some study on. it. It's called the hypostatic union. Very, very complex. Even the word is like, how do you spell hypostatic union? But that is what Paul is laying out, because at the end of verse three, he shows that the man that I'm writing about is fully man. He says he's a descendant of David. He can trace his lineage back to David. So in other words, Jesus, the Christ breathed air. He was sustained by food. He got tired. He used the bathroom. He slept. He does everything that every normal man can do. But if he's only a man, we're in trouble. Because if he's only a man, then he cannot live up to the standard that God has. God's standard isn't good. God's standard is perfection. And no man can ever be perfect. So if he's only a man, if we stop at verse 3, we're in trouble. If he's just a descendant of David, we're in trouble. But then he goes on to verse four and talks about him being resurrected. In other words, he uses the resurrection to affirm that he's fully God as well. So this man that he's going to write about over the next 16 chapters is fully God and fully man. And we needed him to be both because he needed to be man because only man can pay that uh, owes the debt. But he needed to be God because only God can live up to his own standards of perfection. And so in the next 16 chapters, he's like, listen, this Christ that I'm about to lay out, he's a descendant of David, he's fully man. But don't get to it, don't get it twisted. He's also the resurrection of the dead. He was raised up proving, see, the resurrection is so powerful for us. Because if Jesus is still in the tomb, everything we're reading is in vain. He's not God if he's still in the tomb, but he is God because he was able to get up. And so Jesus is man. He's going to explain it. And then he says, listen, but he's not just man. Verse four, he's also God. Look at verse five. Just laying a foundation for the rest of the book. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lifting up one little line in there, all the Gentiles. He's basically saying that the gospel is not just for Jews, which up until this point it was. The gospel is also for Gentiles, which most of this room should be rejoicing that the gospel wasn't just for Jews. Gospel was also for Gentiles. And when you understand what he's really going to be laying out here, he's laying out that the the church at Rome was a diverse church. The church at Rome wasn't made up of only Jews. The church at Rome was also made up of Jews and Greeks and Gentiles, which can we agree is messy. That means the church at Rome wasn't some some, some pseudo-community that was void of problems. That means you get Jews and Gentiles together, that's oil and vinegar. It just it doesn't mix well. Like, you, you know, can you imagine them having a potluck? And they got a potluck and the Jews are, have strict dietary laws. And then the Gentiles come in with their pork and their pig feet. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the kind of fact? There's a whole chapter in Acts dedicated to talking about how they couldn't get together because of their dietary laws. So can you imagine the issues in this community? Which gives me hope when I look around this room. And I look over the next service and the next service, and I see a diversity of people. I see different ethnic groups, but I also see cultural differences. Because you can be the same ethnicity and be culturally different. Like I, I love talking to Timmy and Io, and they're talking to me about their Nigerian culture. And I'm like, that just ain't my culture. We're culturally different. But that's what I love about God's church. God's church is supposed to be culturally different. It's supposed to be ethnically different because in Rome, they were very unique. So we're not some new phenomenon. In fact, I did the work for you. You don't got to do it. I already worked it out for you. Here's how many times Paul mentions Gentiles and nations in this book, 29 times. Then circumcision and uncircumcision, he mentions 15 times. Jews, he mentions 11 times. Israel, he mentions 11 times. Greeks, he mentions six times. Israelites, he mentions three times. In other words, Paul is saying what I'm writing is to a vast group of people who the Gentiles would not have known about this gospel before I'm presenting it to them. So this is powerful for us. This is the reason why when people come to the door, we don't say, what ethnicity are you? Oh, I'm sorry, you can't come in. Here is why we don't. This is why the church should be messy and we accept the messiness, but we grow together. This is why you got to be in DNA with somebody that don't think like you, that don't vote like you, that don't see the video the same way you see it. we got to have people in our lives that diversify our thinking. Why? Because we're really all unified, because what unifies us is greater than what divides us. What unifies us is the gospel message of Christ. And it, it should be okay. You should be able to sit down over coffee with somebody else that thinks differently and you walk away and feel like I still got a brother. I still got a sister. Yeah, Yeah, we argued. Yeah, I got my point across, but we walk away because we're unified because Jesus is the glue that holds us together. And so he's like, listen, I'm writing here to the Gentiles. I'm writing to the Jews at Rome and all of you need to. get." I love this because Paul didn't write a book to the Jews and then write another one to the Gentiles and say, y'all start two different churches. He said, it's one gospel, one church. Y'all get together and y'all figure it out. That's what I love about the diversity of the early church. And this is the only place that you would have seen. The church, I like, get this, was the only place that you would have seen Jews and Gentiles operating in a meaningful way. Everywhere else, they, Jews look down on Gentiles. Gentiles look down on Jews. But then they come together and Paul is like, nah, y'all get it together because This is a diverse church. I love these three words here. I'll end here. Verse 7. To all who are in Rome, look at these three words. Loved by God. Paul ends his introduction by saying the church at Rome, you got to realize that you're actually loved by God. Jews, you're loved by God. Gentiles, you're loved by God. Circumcised, you're loved by God. Uncircumcised, you're loved by God. Whether you eat meat and pork, pork. You're loved by God. Whether you have a vegetarian diet, praise God, George, you're loved by God. That, I feel sometimes I'd be around George. I'd be like, man, that's the devil. All that, all that avocado and what is it? Avocado. avocado. I can't even say it. <laughs> but we're supposed to, we don't have to have the same dietary restrictions. We all can get together and know that we're all loved by God. And being loved by God, the greatest sign of God loving you, Trust me. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other demonstration you can find in the scriptures of God loving you like him sending his one and only son. He doesn't look around and say, you know what? I can't send Jesus. He's too valuable. So let me send Gabriel. He doesn't say, let me send Michael. Why? Because they wouldn't have been sufficient. You needed a fully God and a fully man. And so he sends his one and only son. You're loved by God. Oh, how wonderful it is to be loved by God. And sometimes we sing about the love of God and we think about the love of God and we let it, we do it in a passive way and don't understand the meaning. God shouldn't love you. God shouldn't love me. I should be on God's hit list. Do you know the sin that you've committed against God? Do you know the treason that you've committed against a holy God? But yet God looks down and he says, I love them. And he doesn't love the future you that got it together. He loves you in the midst of your mess now. Now, he doesn't want you to stay there, but he loves you there. Can I prove that to you? Verse, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till the next day. He didn't say, I'm going to check you in two weeks to see if you got it together in the midst of your dysfunction. He says, I love him. So when, we see, when Paul writes to the church at Rome and he ends his introduction and says, listen, Right to the Jews, I'm writing to the, to the Gentiles, I'm writing to the Greeks. You need to understand that you are loved by God. This is shorthand for the gospel. This is shorthand for him saying, the greatest way that you see this demonstration of love is through the cross. So every page that we go through, what you will see over and over again is the love of God. And maybe you haven't experienced the love of God. Maybe you're in here and you walked in here feeling very unloved. Maybe your natural father never loved you. Maybe you don't even know your natural father, but you have a heavenly father that shows his love for us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. How beautiful that is, that that he would send something so valuable, something that was being worshipped in heaven. He said, I'm giving him not just to give him to you. I'm going to give him to you so that you can crucify him so that he can die for your sins and absorb my wrath. It's the love of God. Father, I pray for everybody in this room. It is such an honor to be loved by you. Father, as we go through this book, oh God, I pray that we would see your love over and over again. Sometimes, Lord, that love comes up in the place of a rebuke. That love doesn't always come up in you just saying, I love you. But sometimes that love comes up in you correcting us. I'm not sure of why I feel led to lean there in this prayer, but Father, I realize that, As we go through this, we ain't got to get far out this passage before you start to get at us. We don't got to get far out of chapter one before you start to correct us. Father, that is love. Think about how I interact with my own boys, Lord. It would be so unloving for me to allow them to do whatever they wanted and never correct them. So, Father, as you correct us and encourage us, oh God, help us, shape us and mold us to look more like Jesus Christ. We thank you for this word this morning. May we be doers of your word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.